You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Really good to be with you this morning. Um, you've been told a couple of times that we're in Mark chapter 8, and I'm excited about that because Mark chapter 8 is like a hinge chapter in this book of Mark. It literally falls in the middle of the 16 chapters, but it also is put there very specifically by Mark to to form a hinge between the two halves of his book. So we've seen, and you would have heard over and over and over again, Mark's first eight chapters are like a spiral staircase where he goes back over, back over, back over. He knows that we're slow to understand, just like he's shown us the disciples are slow to understand. And so he goes over the same thing, which is, broadly speaking, he wants us to know that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus has authority over disease and, and death and demons. Um, and so he's gone over and over and over that. This chapter forms the hinge between that kind of teaching and the rest of the book, which is mainly about Jesus' death. Uh, the purpose of his death and then his suffering death, which we'll get to in April as we come around to Easter. So this, this is a really important chapter to understand, just if you want to understand what Mark is on about and why he has put his book together in the way that he has. Remember, we've said over and over again, Mark is, uh, is like a really talented movie director. He has arranged his material, not necessarily chronologically, because that's not how they did things in his day, but theologically. He wants to give us... Uh, Uh, kind of scenes from Jesus' life to tell us something true about who Jesus is and why he came and and all of that kind of thing. So this is a really important chapter. Um, The fact that we're trying to get through this whole chapter and have been getting through a whole chapter every week obviously does us no favours in terms of understanding every word of every verse. We just can't do it. We don't have time. And, um, and, and it would break my heart to see you guys walking out at hour three, okay? So we've got to narrow it down. And so for that reason, we encourage you to be in small groups where you can just chat for hours about this stuff, um, ask each other questions. But also, we've kind of introduced this week, gone back to something we used to do, really, which is um, just to give you a, a, a number, mobile number on the screen. Um, You'll see as the passages come up, there'll be a mobile number. If you want to text your questions about anything that I've said or anything I've left unsaid, then we want you to do that. I was really encouraged this past week by, um, by hearing someone say that they, one thing they like about our church is that we encourage people to question. We encourage people to engage in doubt or in further study or in Um, questioning what the preacher is saying, all of that is good and healthy and part of our discipleship as Christians. So so please do feel free to text in and uh, Jimmy and Dooku and I will get to those this coming week. We might make a little video for you, uh, doing our best to answer uh, your questions from God's Word. So all that said, jump with me into Mark chapter 8, at least for a second, before I ask you to go somewhere else. So the first thing you need to know about Mark chapter 8 is that it begins, the first 10 verses, with this account of Jesus feeding, not the 5,000, that was a couple of weeks ago, but the 4,000. So very similar miracle, uh, very similar outcome. Jesus miraculously feeds a bunch of people who are hungry. And um, the interesting thing about this is, again, putting on our, our kind of questioning hats is asking Mark, why have you put this scene in this part of the movie, the, the 
the, the movie, which is the Gospel of Mark. And I think the reason that he's put this here is really interesting. And to understand why he's put this here, we need to go back into part of last week's chapter that we didn't get to. So, Mark chapter 7, you've got this really interesting interaction between Jesus and a Gentile woman. And so I'm just going to read that for us, and hopefully it unlocks the key to the first part of chapter 8. So, chapter 7, 24 to 29, he got up, that's Jesus, and departed from there to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Remember, these guys are exhausted. They're being mobbed at this point, and so they just need a break. But he could not escape notice. Again, that happens over and over. Instead, immediately after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Gentile. Mark that. The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she was asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the children be fed first because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she replied to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told to her, because of this reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. When she went back to her home, she found her child lying on the bed and the demon was gone. Right, now, that's an important passage because uh, without getting into the whole controversy about Jesus referring to her as a dog, we need to understand that Jesus was very clear about his mission. His mission was to come to the children of Israel. His, his mission was to come to God's children, Israelites, and, um, and, and to do his ministry among them. And so when he comes across this Gentile woman, his response to her is that the children need to be fed first. Notice he says first. He doesn't say only. He says they need to be fed first. It's not fair. He uses a little illustration. I'm feeding the children. We shouldn't give their food to the dogs. Dog, obviously a very derogatory term. It's not clear in his culture whether it was or whether it was just a euphemism or um, a, a nickname for Gentiles. But her response is really interesting. And we need to s- stop ourselves from reading her response with our 2019 post-enlightenment feminist hats on, okay? So some people think Jesus does what she wants because she's so sassy, right? She's, she's, she gets him. She corners him. She, she provides this amazing reply that sort of stuns him. I don't think that's the case. I think Jesus positively responds to her request because he sees in her, in her reply faith and humility, almost the opposite of sassiness, right? He sees in her response, and, and actually, this translation, Christian Standard Bible, I love it. I just bought a, a, a copy of it for my wife yesterday. It was her birthday. This is what she got, this, this CSB Bible. I love this translation. But here I think it misses something in the, in the literal translation. She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs get the crumbs, okay? So the the yes part is important because she's acknowledging that Jesus is right in what he says. She's not correcting him. She's not debating him. She's actually acknowledging, yes, I am what you say I am. I am a Gentile. That does make me a dog. I'm not a member of of the people of Israel. But her faith causes her to kind of extend this request that maybe by your mercy and grace, Lord, you could find some room for 
for mercy for people like me. And so it's actually a very humble acknowledgement of her place in salvation history. And he does what she says because he wants to reveal to us that God's mission, though it began with the children of Israel, is moving and broadening to encompass all people. That's where the 4,000 comes in. That's why Mark moves from that story into the feeding of the 4,000, because this miracle, unlike the 5,000, this miracle happens in Gentile territory, and in all likelihood, Gentile people are the beneficiaries of this miracle. So you start with one Gentile woman, and now we're 4,000 Gentile people, probably 10, 12,000 people, 4,000 men, beneficiaries of Jesus' ministry. So it's still true that he came for the people of Israel, but it's also true that his mission, the bringing of his kingdom, is going to extend to all people, just as we see in the book of Acts, moving from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and now to the ends of the earth in Caroline Springs. So that's why Mark has put it together in this way. He wants us to get that this was Jesus' intention, to begin a movement of his kingdom that would bless the whole earth. And then, again, because he's this brilliant film director, Mark takes us to the next arrangement, the next scene, where he wants us to get something. He wants us to join some dots. First of all, Jesus' ministry is going to the ends of the earth. Second of all, he shows us two healings, two two instances where blindness is healed in stages. Two instances where blindness is healed in stages. One in physical healing of blind, physical blindness and one in spiritual healing of spiritual blindness and he jams them together here it's almost clunky the way that he's jammed them together he wants us to get the point so let's let's check it out all right let's have a look at these two different healings so you have the disciples blind to who Jesus really is and why he's come You have that in verse 11 to 21. We won't go through the whole thing, but they just, even after the 5,000, the 4,000, the calming of the storm, the walking on the sea, the casting out of demons, the resurrecting or resuscitation of dead people, even after all of that, they still don't get who he is. And so he says in verse 17 to 18, aware of all of that, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? There's this blindness in the disciples that is preventing them from seeing Jesus for who he really is. They're stuck on bread. They're stuck on earthly things, failing to see a spiritual reality about who Jesus is, what he's come for, what he's capable of, what he's going to do. So there's this, this spiritual blindness. He refers to it as blindness, deafness, hardness of heart. And then Mark drops in, just drops into the middle of this, this, this healing of physical blindness. All right, so 22 to 25. They came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village, spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him and asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people 
They look like trees walking. And again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. So a healing, physical healing of physical blindness that happens in stages. You notice this is interesting. Even with Jesus, both he's, he's using physical means, spit, hands, and it's happening in stages. He's not, he's not even though there's a, there's a Lord of the Rings reference there to Ents, people walking around like trees, am I the only geek in this church? He's not Gandalf, right? He's not just waving his staff and making stuff happen. Jesus is healing this man, and it's happening in stages. And we could go into how this might apply to our own ministry of, of healing and of prayer in this place. But the blindness is healed in stages. And the reason I think that Mark puts that right in the middle, it's called, in, if you're a Bible nerd, it's a, a Mark and Sandwich, right? He starts out with the disciples being blind, then he gives us this illustration of Jesus healing physical blindness in stages, and then we're going to see the disciples in stages are healed of their spiritual blindness. But it's not immediate. It takes, it takes time. And so you see in verse 27 to 30, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, Still others, one of the prophets, but you, but you, he asked them, who do you say I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about it. So you have this climactic moment. This is recognized as sort of the, the climax of Mark's gospel, the, the, the climax of the hinge before we go back into the, into the rest of the story. Peter confesses, you are the Messiah. And if you uh, haven't been around church a whole bunch or if you don't, haven't got a, a whole lot of knowledge of the Bible, you need to know that that term Messiah is loaded, loaded with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of salvation history so that these Jews who, who heard Peter saying these words would have been absolutely astonished. Really? Is this the Messiah? Is this the one we've been waiting for? Is this the one who's going to bring God's kingdom presence on the earth? And the reason uh, he says, don't tell anyone about me, the reason he said the same after the healing of the blind man, um, is because he doesn't want the people of Israel to get this yet en masse. If the people of Israel en masse get that he's the Messiah, they're going to try and make him a military ruler. And he wants to avoid that. He knows his real path is not towards uh, physical conquest, but towards crucifixion and resurrection. So you might have picked that up. In Mark, sometimes he says to people, go and tell people about what God's done for you. That always happens when he's in Gentile territory because he knows the Gentiles aren't going to come and make him king. Whenever he's around the Jews, he says, don't tell anyone because he, that he doesn't want them to rally around him and try and make him something that he hasn't come to be. And so Peter gets it. 
for the first time, if you're reading this book, the whole thing is just bumbling after bumbling at the hands of the disciples. Remember, Peter is the one who's giving John Mark the information to write the gospel. Peter knows just how dumb they were, just how slow, blind, deaf, hard in their hearts they were. And now we finally get to a point where he gets it. He gets it, but he doesn't get it. He can see people look like trees, but he can't yet see everything. This healing is going to come in stages. So he gets it. He gets what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, but he doesn't understand what it means for Jesus to be the Savior. He gets that Jesus is Messiah. He doesn't understand what it means for Jesus to be the Savior. And to be fair to him, the Jews of their day, Peter included, didn't have a concept of the Messiah being a suffering servant. They had a concept of the Messiah being a conquering king, but not a suffering servant. And so he doesn't fully understand what it will mean for Jesus to achieve his mission, which is to be the saviour of all people, to die a brutal death on the cross for sin. So, because of that, we get verse 31 to 33. Jesus began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. There he got his mission. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but about human concerns. Peter wants him to be this conquering military king. That's an earthly concern. It's a concern that Satan, if he could, would stir up in the people and divert Jesus from his mission, which ultimately was to crush Satan's head. And so he rebukes that in Peter and says, you don't yet get it. You get it, but you don't get it. Your blindness is going to be healed in stages. So here's what I think all of this means for us. I think for us, unlike Peter and the disciples, we get that Jesus came to be a suffering saviour. We get that Jesus had to die. Why did Jesus die? Because in his death, he suffered the punishment that we deserve. We are all bound to die because the wages for sin is death. Our death is final and eternal, and Jesus came to take our place, his death for our death. We get that. We're not waiting for Jesus to come and establish an earthly kingdom. We understand that he came and established his kingdom through his death and resurrection. So we understand that to be Messiah, to be Savior, means that Jesus must die. Where we might miss it is our failure to see that we must die as well. We understand that Jesus had to die. We often miss the fact that we must die. And I'm not talking about, you know, when you're old and grey. 
or when you get hit by a bus. I'm talking about the death that Jesus calls every one of his disciples to, all right? Verse 34 to 35. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone, just hear this, this means everyone in this room, all of your kids are in their room. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Yeah, we understand that Jesus had to die. Very often we're blind to the fact that he calls us to die as well. To be a Christian is to die. To be a Christian is to take up your cross which is an instrument of execution. Let's not forget, we have, we have them in our churches, we wear them around our necks. It's an instrument of execution. To take up your cross means you are going to die. It means dying daily in my daily pursuit of Jesus. Which got me thinking this past week about the difference between the gospel as we understand it, outlined right here by Jesus in a few verses, what he came to do and then what he calls us to do, the contrast between that and what, what I like to think of as the, the secular gospel. So secular meaning non-Christian, non-spiritual, right? The, the worldly gospel, the gospel as the world understands it. And I, I've been really, really encouraged by, um, by the thinking and writing of a guy named Mark Sayers. He runs a church just over the other side of the city and uh, has helped me heaps over the years understand a whole bunch of stuff. And he, he talks about the secular vision for the gospel, and it's, and it's something like this. It would take too much time to, to flesh it out a whole bunch, but if we understand the Christian gospel being about creation, and fall, and salvation, the secular version of the gospel actually mirrors that a whole bunch, and it makes sense because this whole Western civilization that we live and breathe in is is built on a Christian understanding of the world. It's like, you can't help it. You can try and get away from it, but you're left without any foundation, and so even if you don't believe in Jesus, you're forced to kind of walk in his world. It's the world that's being constructed around you, and so their vision of the gospel is, is, is what Mark calls a, the kingdom without the king. And it looks like this. Creation is, um, creation is about me being born into the world innocent, uh, a blank slate, uh, a, a creature full of potential. That's my creation story if I'm, a, if I'm just a, a regular person in the world. I start with all of this potential and then the fall narrative is not about Adam and Eve in the garden or Satan or sin. It's about how that innocence and that potential has been robbed from me in my life. So all of these things, all of these forces in my life conspire to rob me of my true potential. It's the, the things that break me. It's my family of origin. It's my, the father who was absent. It was the uncle who abused me. It was the job that I'm enslaved to. It's the, 
the wife that I'm um, enslaved to. It's my kids who are disobedient, right? It's, it's the, my lack of finances. It's the car that I have versus the car that I want. All of these things, all of these forces around me are conspiring to bring me down. It's my fall. It's, that, it's what's broken me. And so creation, fall, redemption or salvation in the secular mindset is how can I redeem myself? Which, which is another way of saying, how can I find myself? Salvation for people in the culture around us is finding self. This is why you get people who are trying to escape all of these forces, these negative forces around them, by going overseas. I need to, I need to get away from my house, my family, my dog, my 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 work or whatever, and get overseas so I can find myself. I need to change jobs so I can just have some space to find myself. I need to get divorced so I can find myself again. This is the, this is the redemption story of our time. And if you speak to anyone around you, you will find this. You'll need to do a bit of translation because they won't use the spiritual language, but this is the redemption story of our time. I need to get stuff whether it's consumables or location or whatever it is, so that I can be saved from all of these negative forces. And then I can start to realize my true potential. It's very individualistic. There's no sense of corporate, um, of salvation of the world. It's, a, it's all about me, which is, makes perfect sense of our, the culture around us. And it's all about finding myself, redeeming myself. So, contrast the secular gospel with Jesus' vision of the gospel. And again, you have creation, and again, you have in the beginning things were good. God is good creator. He makes all things good and perfect. But then you have the fall, and the fall doesn't come about because of all of these things that I'm a victim of. The fall comes about because of my complicity in sin. Adam and Eve in the beginning and me by extension through them, both extension through the ages and in my own experience, my sin has caused my downfall. It's caused a disconnection from God, which is vital in order for me to find life. And so you have creation and fall and then salvation or redemption comes through Jesus' death, burial and resurrection followed by my death, burial and resurrection. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which secures for everyone who has faith in him reconciliation with God. And then as his disciple, I follow his example. I die, die to self, and buried in baptism and raised to new life, new birth, resurrection, both in the age to come, but now, but now in my born-again experience. Now, isn't it fascinating that the secular vision of the gospel is about me finding myself and Jesus' vision of the gospel is about me dying to myself? Remember what he just said? Verse 34 to 35. He says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, deny himself. That's the exact opposite of the secular gospel. Denying myself is the opposite of my goal. The things that cause my downfall are my commitments. That 
con that mobile phone contract, that's part of why I'm messed up. That attachment to that girlfriend, that's why I'm messed up, right? All of these commitments, which is why we're commitment phobic. Jesus says, exact opposite, deny himself, take up his cross, an instrument of death, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life, secular gospel, will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. It's a death which is the gateway to, for life, abundant life, eternal life, life with God. Now here's, here's the great thing about all of this. And we can chat about whether all of that is a true picture of things. It makes sense to me. The great thing about all of this is because right now, right in this moment, right, right now, in a way that wasn't true 50 years ago or 100 years ago, right now we are starting to realise that the secular vision is failing. The secular vision is empty. The secular vision that promised so much freedom from religion and commitment and, and th these, these things that encumber us and cause us to fall and save us from finding ourselves, that vision is empty. We get to that vision, we start living it out, and we find that life has no meaning. I mean, literally, no meaning can be found in a secular vision. We get to that vision and we find anxiety spikes. By the way, the reason that anxiety spikes in the secular vision and in the church is because so often in the church we have the secular vision and have just painted it in Christian colours. Our secular vision of the gospel with Christian colours over it is, I need to find myself and God will help me do that. It's the prosperity gospel. I want to get all these things that the secular vision promises me and Jesus might help me get them. So the secular vision, and it's a catastrophic failure, and that's good news. That's something to celebrate. It'll mean short-term pain, but long-term eternal gain for those who come to the ends of themselves and find there is nothing here for me. Jesus comes to people like that, and you might be like that here this morning. He comes to you and says, I have so much more than that. What I have is not temporal, but eternal. What I have is not shallow, but abundant. I came that they might have life and have it to the full, to have it abundantly. This is what Jesus extends to us. And I'm not talking about heaven. I'm talking about here, restored, perfected in heaven, but now. That you can have a, a vision of life which is ultimately fulfilling, which delivers on its promises in ways that the secular vision never does. I, I just love how oxymoronic the gospel is, that it turns out Jesus is right. The path to life is through death. The path to fulfillment is through self-denial. 
This is the upside down vision of the world that Jesus has. And it's true and it's good. And, And let me even say this, it works. It works because it's true and it's good and it's beautiful. I love that Kerry opened up our time this morning by quoting Jesus about him saying, come to me, all you, all you who believe the secular gospel, who are burdened, heavy laden, right? Burdened down by all of these false promises. Come to me, I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come. So Jesus' invitation to us this morning is not a salesman's invitation. All of the secular gospel stuff is sold to you through marketing and advertising and it's pretty and it's filtered and it looks nice. Again, Jesus provides the contrast. He says, I'm not going to sell you anything. I'm going to tell you, if you want to follow me, you have to die. How many people are going to buy that? But the path through death leads to, leads to resurrection and life abundant. So a, cu- a couple of things for us to take away. I think as, if you're a Christian here this morning, you should be encouraged that this is your time. You have a cultural milieu, an environment in which your message is, an, is, a, is a message that delivers where other messages have failed. People at large recognize that the the thing that they've bought doesn't work. And so you have an opportunity here. You have an opportunity to step into their gospel, to see their creation story, their fall story, their salvation story, and to give them a better story, to give them God's story. You can tell it through your own experience. You can tell it from the perspective of Jesus' own words. What the world wants to see in us is an authenticity where they have received something plastic. This is why it's so interesting. You know that McCrindle research I shared with you recently of Australians, secular Australians, the question about what they love and what they don't like about faith The thing they hate most is celebrity figureheads trying to sell them something about their faith. I'm really famous and I'm a Christian. The thing that they love most is authenticity in regular people of faith. And if you are about my vintage and a Christian, that turns your world upside down because I grew up believing if only Michael Jordan would become a Christian, then everyone would be a Christian. If only whoever's famous now would become a Christian then everyone would be. Imagine if Lady Gaga became like a disciple and took up her cross. It'd be, it doesn't work that way, and people don't want it that way. They want to see you. They want to see you taking up your cross daily and following Jesus. That is what makes a difference. And it's exactly what Jesus is calling us to. It's a, it's a beautiful vision, but it is catastrophic. Here's, here's my last thing, right? And, and I'll, I'll say this because Sarah brought it up so well at the beginning. This vision that we have, this mission, this, this reason for existence, to be people helping people make all of life all about Jesus, it's great. 
but it can become domesticated. We say it enough, we see it enough, it just becomes, yeah, that's the thing that the church does or whatever, that's the thing that we're all meant to be doing. We can't forget that that is something catastrophic. That is taking up cross daily and following Jesus. That is death. So it's beautiful and it's catastrophic. We've had these stories of people being healed from their blindness in stages. And all of us here, whether non-Christian or Christian, we're all being healed in stages of our blindness. None of us have truly grasped yet what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so we trust, and this is one of the reasons we do this every week, we trust that as we gather together and we're submissive to his spirit and we're open to his word, that he will transform us from one degree of glory to the next, that he will heal us in stages from blindness to see things as they truly are. I'm gonna pray that for us now. If you wanna be part of that, then pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, for his death, his burial and his resurrection. It has bought us reconciliation with you. And now I pray that as we open our arms to receive the blessing of your grace, we would also stretch out our arms to be nailed to the cross. That we as your followers would be obedient to you in dying to ourselves, denying ourselves, losing our life so that we might find it. Father, I pray that you would enable each one of us to be missionaries in the culture around us, that you would encourage us that we have a better, more beautiful, more true, more lasting, more eternal, more cosmic story than the story that's trotted out among us, around us. We pray that because you're merciful and kind, powerful, loving, compassionate, that on the basis of your nature, you would heal us by degrees and open our eyes to see who you are and who we are in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.